0: Hello and welcome to All Things Policy. The situation on the line of actual control, the LAC that divides India and China, is tense as ever, especially around Pangongsu and Ladakh. Uh, To make sense of this ongoing standoff of the diplomatic and military maneuvers and of the prospects for the near future, I am joined by our two China scholars, Manoj and Suyesh. So let's get right to it. Uh, On Thursday... External Affairs Minister S. Jaishankar and uh, Wang Yi, his Chinese counterpart, held talks in Moscow and they came up with a joint statement. Let's try and understand what this joint statement contains, uh, you know, how unprecedented this is, what what's, what the significance of it is. But Swish, let's first start by just uh, bringing us all up to date on what has happened on the LAC in the last couple of weeks. Okay, uh, so let's just revise
2: back. Uh, we are in the fifth month of the standoff. Uh, standoff started at few places in Sikkim uh, there was a scuffle in Sikkim and in, uh, in Pangong and then stand- standoff started at four places uh, out of the four places uh, three three places there we are still in the eyeball to eyeball situation and the standoff got resolved there was also a fist fighting at Galwan where first time in the last 45 years there were fatalities on the Sino-Indian border so in the last two weeks for the first time reportedly for the first time India's posture changed from being defensive to being offensive. Uh, India is very, uh, in a very politically correct context, putting it out that we are we have taken a pre active, preempted step to ban the Chinese aggression. But what India did exactly was to do uh, so until now, this kind of at Pangong was on the northern bank. Uh, India, in its recent preemptive move, Escalated things on the southern bank, where it occupied heights uh, at three or four important places. I'll, I'm sure we'll talk about this in the uh, in the conversation ahead. Yes. But India uh, occupied places in four or five uh, important tops, which would give it them strategic and tactical advantage and negotiating power in the future of the standoff. So this is what happened in the past two weeks. Also, there are reports that Chinese tried to occupy this after. Chinese are repeatedly trying to occupy this after India's occupation of these places. Uh, I wouldn't call it India's occupation because in India, in India's uh, line of control perception, it falls within the Indian territory. But uh, Chinese have repeatedly tried to come over these places, but they have uh, they have failed constantly, according to Indian reports. And now we had Wang Yi and uh, Dr. Jaishankar meeting each other yesterday where they came out with a very nice statement that we will work on uh, so all the border agreements and uh, we will work to focus confidence building measure. We will work on all border agreements going ahead. And But I don't think the uh, picture is as floral as it is, sound, uh, as it, as
0: it is made to be. All right. Yeah. So as Soyesh pointed out, uh, you know, we've had some fairly unprecedented goings on in the line of control. You've had fatalities and also reports of some of the first shots being fired in decades. Manoj, how unprecedented is this joint statement on the other hand? Is this just business as usual or does it carry some real significance?
1: Hey, um, so I think it's really interesting that they firstly came out with a joint statement. I mean, if you look at uh, the conversations that the two sides have had uh, at this sort of political level, right? Whether it was uh, between... For Indian Foreign Minister and the Chinese Foreign Minister, or whether it was between the Chinese Foreign Minister and India's National Security Advisor Ajit Doval, or whether it was between the Indian Ambassador, who you know about a month or so ago reached out to other elements within the Chinese system, reaching out to uh, the Party elements, reaching out to the Central Military Commission, uh, which to us sort of signified an attempt by India to get its message heard in Beijing, because it felt like this was not being heard or the sort of seriousness of what the situation was, was not being acknowledged in Beijing. Or it could simply be, uh, you know, to the effect that the PLA had changed the status quo. What did India have to bargain with? Uh, and India was trying to sort of emphasize that, you know, uh, without any chip to bargain with India was basically trying to emphasize that, look, things are tense. Let's go back to status quo ante, and that was not really happening. at least the message was not being heard. This is all happening in sort of early, mid-August. In late August is when we hear what Suyash is talking about, right? That uh, uh, the Indian army took certain steps, um, you know, on the night of the 31st. Again, it's an it's a curious series of events of which, to be honest, we have really no, you know, you can only reply on these, uh, you can only depend on these source-based reports. What heights India has occupied, where it has occupied, are really tricky to sort of detail because there's nothing clear that's come out from the government. Uh, which says what was done. The government essentially said, what we said that it was sort of a preemptive step because the Chinese on the 29th and the 30th of August were trying to carry out, quote-unquote, provocative military movements to change the status quo. Um, and this, at least we know, was along the southern bank of the Pangong So we don't really know exactly, uh, you know, apart from what media has been reporting. That's sort of one thing. Now, in the backdrop of this, it's important to note that in September, this was not just the first diplomatic meeting between India and China. You had uh, a conversation between uh, the Indian Defence Minister Rajnath Singh and China's Defence Minister Wei Fenghe. Uh, this happened in early September, again in Moscow, as part of the SCO meeting. Um, and at that meeting, uh, what we saw was a far more hardline position. Both sides essentially issued separate statements. So, what has significantly changed from that meeting to this meeting is again something to consider. Um, And honestly, we don't have any answers in terms of what has significantly changed on the ground. Uh, Like Suyash said, there are some reports about the Chinese wanting to push back against the Indian army for the heights that it has occupied on the southern bank of the Pangongso. Um, And that's not happened so far. The Chinese have not been able to do that. Um, There are also reports about commanders on the ground talking and at the same time, the Chinese attempted to do something like this. Um, So it's really unclear. And that's the one point that I want to get out that we can only know so much about what's happening. But something obviously shifted. For the defense ministers to not issue a joint statement, yet for the foreign ministers to issue a joint statement. In this, it's important to note that the Chinese foreign minister is also a state councillor. So he's slightly higher uh, in that sense. uh, You know, he's a little bit more influential. Uh, Yet he's an an executing person. He's not a policy-making guy. Uh, He's not uh, Yang Jiechi, who's the head of the Foreign Affairs Commission and part of the Politburo. Uh, The Chinese foreign minister and state councillor Wang Yi falls a little bit lower in the hierarchy. So he's a guy who's executing the vision and it's the first point something has changed between the defense ministers meeting and the foreign ministers meeting. Now coming back to this uh, joint statement it's not a very long joint statement firstly it's again it was surprising to me last night when I read the fact that they issued a joint statement but there are five points that they talk about they talk about both ministers uh, saying that both sides should take guidance from the consensus of the leaders and not allowing differences to become disputes. They talk about the current situation on the border areas not being in the interest of either side. Uh, and therefore, the border troops of both sides should continue dialogue, quickly disengage, uh, and maintain proper distance to East tensions. They both talk about uh, relying on existing agreements and protocols to maintain peace and tranquility. Uh, they, the fourth point is talking about... Uh, Continuing the dialogue of communication that so far happened, which a lot of it is done on the ground by the military commanders and also through the one established diplomatic forum called the Working Mechanism for Consultation and Coordination on India-China Border Affairs or the WMCC. There's been conversation through that mechanism. And the last point, which I think is probably the most interesting point, uh, and we'll have to see whether there's any import of this eventually, Uh, the ministers agreed that as the situation eases, the two sides should expedite, uh, work to conclude new confidence-building measures to maintain peace and tranquility. Interestingly, what's not mentioned in any of this is uh, shifting of blame to any side for what's happened. So nobody is saying that you're at fault, uh, which has been the standard, nomin- standard sort of usage of language in any of these statements from both sides. Also, there is no talk about uh, status quo ante from India's side. So it's unclear what India's objective is based on this what this tells you, tells me is that there is perhaps something that, you know, General Menon has been arguing for a very long time. If you do a quid pro quo, then perhaps you can negotiate. And it seems like that is what is being said here. I take it with a pinch of salt that these negotiations are necessarily going to translate into changes on the ground. So unless we see actual changes on the ground, you know, this is all well and good. We'll see how that plays out. So this is good that they've agreed on a joint statement. It shows some level of political will perhaps to talk to resolve things. But uh, given the volatility of the situation at the ground, how this percolates to the ground, how uh, troops on both sides operate on the ground, what do you do in case of once again, when you start to let's say disengage uh, and there is some verification issue. And again, there can be a scuffle. What do you do when that happens? Because you're in a very difficult situation. So the, Practical modalities of this political will of maintaining, you know, peace and tranquility and letting not differences become disputes, is what's going to really matter. Um, this is all well and good. We've heard this desire before, also, but there are some points, like I said, no blaming each other, no talk about status quo ante, uh, and something forward-looking about new confidence-building measures. Uh, but again, we'll have to see how this translates. Right. Uh, you know, I, I assume that another thing we'll have to
0: look out for is how the military commanders meeting goes in a couple of days or so. Uh,
1: what, what can we expect from that? What is the, what is the best case scenario? To me, I think the best case scenario is for uh, both sides to actually uh, step back from where they are uh, and the Chinese to go back to where things were like uh, before mid-April when this all started. And a sort of best case scenario in addition to that would be that the Chinese would recognize uh, that uh, there is value in having clarity on where the LAC is. Because, you know, uh, if this is something, I mean, if escalation from India, which is essentially what happened, we don't know the details of what what the escalation is, but if escalation from India is what the Chinese need to be able to reassess what they have done, then it would have been a positive outcome in some ways. But I am sort of very suspect of that because... uh, I mean, even if this instance is resolved, when we're talking about new confidence-building measures, what those will entail, you know, it's sort of hinting at what people, uh, you know, what sort of people like Ambassador Shushankar Menon have said, a new modus vivendi, although that's still far away. This is just confidence-building. It's hinting at going in that direction. Yet, I'd be uh, to me, that's a very, very fraught pathway to get there. It's a good destination, but it's a very, very fraught pathway. And I would see a lot more volatility unless both sides can actually step back. And it has to start with the Chinese stepping back because uh, they were the ones who first sort of stepped forward. Um, And if you just look at last night, just before this meeting was happening between Jaishankar and Wang Yi, uh, there was a coordinated media uh, sort of campaign by the Chinese. Uh, Xinhua put out its first commentary on all of this, basically warning India of conflict. You know, uh, Global Times... uh, said that we need to go back to the 1959 LAC. And none of this is happening, you know, without direction. So there's very clearly some objective that Beijing has. Uh, And I hope that as they put that objective forward, even if it is a 1959 LAC that they're talking about, if that gets clarified as their perception, then at least we can start a conversation based on that. Uh, And I presume what the Chinese will say is that if that's our perception, we need to have patrolling rights still there and something like that. And that will create new rounds
0: of friction. Right. Yeah, I, I was uh, quite struck by the uh, uh, Shinoa editorial also. You know, we're used to uh, Global Times uh, you know, doing what it does. But uh, clearly, the Chinese are uh, upping the rhetoric and the stakes on their side. But Swish, as uh, you pointed out, India has reportedly taken some points uh, along the southern bank of uh, Pangong. So what is its significance on the ground? Reportedly, there are a few
2: points which are strategically and tactically very important uh, on the southern bank of, uh, of Pangong Su. Some of these names prominently also featured in the 1962 war. For example, uh, these ranges, there are multiple ranges. Uh, these ranges are called Kailash ranges. Uh, these ranges start from Pangong and then they go up to six, seven kilometers away, up to Rechingla, Rechangla, uh, Gurung Hill, Black Top. And then there is, uh, if you see, it, if you if you can figure, if you can imagine a map in front of you, there is Pangong Lake, and just on the right side of the Pangong Lake, where the uh, southern bank is, there is Sangur Lake, and next to the Sangur Lake there is Sangur Gap. So the important part to be noted here is that the Sangur Gap is the only. Uh, When you come ahead of Sangur Gap towards Indian side, it's the only flat top available there. So, for example, consider all these ranges and a flat top in the middle. And that's the only way where artillery, that's the only location where artillery could be used. So, if artillery has to be brought forward on either of the side, uh, it has to be through that range in that area. Now, what is the strategic and tactical importance of that? Lay India's uh, lay capital is very close from there. It's straight. That Using that gap, India's capital, lay capital is very close at a straight distance. Once uh, Chinese artillery enters that region, it would be very difficult to stop them. On the other hand, uh, if you go ahead of that, using Indian side, if you go ahead of that Sangur gap, there is uh, the Xinjiang, I don't remember the number, the number that is coined for that highway, the Xinjiang-Tibet highway. It passes through those ranges so that's a vulnerability or a strength for both the sides and that is why it is tactically very important and that's why i think these things happened because we occupied tactical import tactically important ranges uh, there was at least we can say it right now that there was some concession from the chinese side in form of a joint statement some of these ranges were also occupied These okay this all these ranges are above fifteen thousand feet, so it is very difficult to de- mount these ranges for a very long time. Uh, that's a that, that's a challenge that the Indian army is going to face in the future. Also, uh, the LAC that India conceives goes through the Sangur Lake, uh, and these ranges, if you see on the Nother Bank, for example, uh, Rachingla is directly opposite to uh, Finger Eight. This also gives a tactical advantage being on a height. Over both the sites. So these are some of the important advantages, the tactical advantages that India has got because of occupying these areas. One, uh, it can because of being on the height, it can monitor both the banks. Two, it gives control over the tabletop Chushul area. Three, it can India can pinpoint at vulnerabilities uh, because through that Chushul Bowl area, the Tibet Xinjiang uh, highway is very close. Uh, so, these are the three important tactical reasons for which I think concession happened from the Chinese side, if we can call it a concession in the form of joint
0: statement, first joint statement, since the time the issue started. Right. So, at least there was a joint statement. Now, obviously, these uh, tactical maneuvers have a broader political significance. So, I want to close, Manoj, by asking you the most basic question, you know, which is why on earth is China doing this? Uh, earlier this year, in around April, we had actually predicted that uh, China would, uh, try and do some sort of land grabs along the LAC with India and we were unfortunately proved correct. Uh, but
1: I'm not sure if
0: we got Chinese motivations correct.
1: What's driving that? I think that's, uh, you know, the million dollar question. So I hope I get a million bucks after I say what I say. <laughs> but I mean, it's really, it's really, you know, I, I for one, I am unable to uh, fathom whether there is a single specific objective, you know, something tangible, whether it was capturing territory, whether it was showing India who's the boss and what does that mean tangibly? Uh, So it's very difficult to fathom what they wanted, whether it was, you know, coerce India into joining PRI, whether it was coerce India into not partnering with the US. Um, Any of these, if these were objectives at all, specific objectives or outcomes, I don't think Beijing. Uh, anybody in Beijing would have thought by doing this, you would have achieved this. Uh, or if they thought about it, then I think it's really foolhardy. Um, so therefore, I don't sort of put it to individual objectives. The only individual objective that sort of makes some sense to me is to uh, stymie India's infrastructure development at the bottom. And that to me is a tangible objective, which, for example, if you end up seeing some sort of new confidence building measures and some sort of a buffer zone creation or something like that, You might end up seeing some sort of, uh, you know, uh, delay in what India is doing at the border or at least some sort of a shift. Um, So that perhaps could be a tangible objective. But again, we don't know the Chinese have not told us. What I do sense is that there is a broader sort of something may have started with something specific in mind, such as maybe infrastructure. And as things got on, things have become, you know, you can't really control the spiral of what happens eventually. But to me, the broader sort of objective would have been this. Um, or the of purpose, motivation would have been this. So China sees India as a regional rival. And if you are a major power, which has political objectives, which are being, uh, you know, where there's an obstacle that's coming in from a regional rival, you might want to exercise those to achieve your political objectives, whether it's a territorial objective also. You want to test the limits of your power because you've accumulated that much power. And what uses that power if you can't achieve your political objectives? So to me, there's some bit of that that's going on over here. There's an estimation of China's strength. There's a sense of the broader objective being to assert China's strength at a time where the world, uh, where different countries around the world, major powers around the world, seem to be uh, relatively worse off than China amid the pandemic. Uh, So I think this is a bit of sort of that playing out, right? A sense of anxiety uh, along with a sense of, you know, having accumulated power and seeing this as an opportune moment to exercise that power to see how far you can push whatever to shape eventual outcomes. Can you get India to temper its relationship or its approach to the US uh, when China's relationship with the US is getting far more complex than ever before in the last 40 years. I mean, if you look at the statement that uh, there was another statement that Wang he put out after this meeting with Jay Shankar and uh, Sergei Lavrov, and that talks about, you know, India, China, and Russia in a broad sort of global sense. And uh, I mean, it's important to sort of read out one of the points about from that statement where he talks about, you know, how there's usually been a doubt about where these three countries stand. uh, But uh, let me sort of tell you that they have much more in common than you would have imagined. And I think that's another aspect of it. You know, so this this is what he said. He says, Wang noted that there are always some doubts about the cooperation prospects of China, Russia and India. But first of all, all three countries have extensive and profound common interests and ideas. And then he sort of goes on to summarize these, which talks about democratization of international relations, multipolarization, uh, fighting against unilateralism support. So I think that's what we need to keep in mind, that the Chinese are looking at in a broader context.
2: Yeah, I think, uh, Manu, I agree with you on most of the points, but I think it's a strategic uh, for some tactical gain, uh, some tactical gains, China has made a strategic disaster. For instance, uh, if you if if their motive was to uh, keep India away from US's lab, then it is clearly not going to happen, irrespective of whatever they do. Two, if their motive was to uh, keep India in check, again it is not going to happen because India would this would act as a rebound because of the things that China is doing on the border. India would more likely go into uh, balancing it with using other different regional powers, uh, US, etc. So uh, and third one, if the border infrastructure is a problem, then it has clearly not worked out because in the past few months since the standoff started, the speed at which our border infrastructure is coming up has increased tremendously. So if that were the reasons, then clearly it's a t- for some or for clear some strategic advantage they
1: have, uh, they have completely lost on strategic grounds. So in part, I sort of agree with you because uh, uh, my sense of what is the strategic mistake that they have committed here is that they have not lost. I don't think India has gone into the US lap and I don't think India will go into the US lap. I mean, let's be very clear. The Indian defense minister and foreign ministers made it a point to travel to Moscow for a summit with Russia and China via Tehran. There is a signal that the Indian side is also sending to the world about where its foreign policy uh, interests lie. Uh, you know and we've made some tremendous changes in our relationship with iran under with us under us pressure so i think i don't see it as a foregone conclusion that india is falling into this camp or that camp the indian the indian government and the indian foreign policy establishment has its own interests with regard to own perception of the world and india's role in the world and i don't think that uh, sort of falls in line with uh, directly sort of being in U.S. lap. The U.S. is an extremely important, perhaps the most important relationship for India. Uh, but I wouldn't sort of go that far to say uh, being in the lap uh, or that this forces India. Yes. If you see conflict and conflict escalates into something bigger and India's choices get constrained, then yes, at the moment to me, what I see is happening is India is keeping its options open.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah. That's really interesting. You know, uh... Even if all China has been after really has been slowing down Indian infrastructure development, the very fact that they can keep Indians guessing about their motivations, their higher purposes, you know, that itself benefits them because it tends to stymie Indian action. Uh, but on that note, uh, thank you, Manoj and Soyash, for your informed and sobering insights and also for generally unpacking all this mess for us. Uh, by the way, if you're even remotely interested in China, subscribe to Manoj and Suez's newsletters. Manoj's newsletters call Eye on China, newsletter newsletters call PLA Insight. And uh, stay tuned to All Things Policy for more analysis and insight on China and a host of other topics as well. Thank you.
1: If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.